Harry Potter. Who's Harry Potter? You're a wizard, Harry. True then. Harry Potter has come to hope. Potter! How is it that a baby with no extraordinary magical talent was able to defeat the greatest wizard of all time? Lord Voldemort transferred some of these powers to you. You may be the chosen one, mate. This is a whole lot bigger than that. Messrs. Mooney, Padfoot, Prongs. Huh? Wormtail! You can do things, can't you, Tom? Things other children can't. I can make bad things happen to people who are mean to me. I would be able to finish Salazar Slytherin's noble work. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. He's back! He's back! Voldemort's back! You mark my words, there'll be killings next! Dumbledore is a great wizard. Only a fool would question it. I know what you did, Malfoy. You hexed her, didn't you? Hogwarts has been chosen to host the Tri-Wizard Tournament. Fight back! You coward, fight back! Why is it when something happens, it is always you three? Believe me, Professor. I've been asking myself the same question for six years. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Look, uh, guys, I just need to raise awareness about something with you before we get into the show properly. Basically, what you're about to hear is... Well, it's basically me having a conversation and I... Guys, I must be honest, the sound quality is not as good as it normally would be and for that I apologize. I've done really everything in my power to uh, sweeten the sound and really improve it and try to get the most out of it. But I mean, at this point, it uh, pretty much it is what it is. And there's really not a whole lot I can do to fix it. So <clears throat> what, what I could have done was either use the audio that I have, or I could have re-recorded everything and tried to do it that way. So Ultimately, what I decided is that I'll just go ahead and use what I have because there's a, a lot of spontaneity and whatnot in this discussion that I really wouldn't be able to recapture. And so, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, the audio quality isn't as good as it normally would be, but I've, I've done my best with it. And so at this point, you know, I just kind of have to throw myself upon your mercy. I'll try my best to never let this happen again. But for right now, you know, guys, it is what it is. So... Hopefully that's all going to be okay, so I think that's pretty much it. Now, I'm going to pass the baton off to myself. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today... Oh, starting today. Today, I am going to be talking... Oh, actually, t before I even get into what I'm talking about, today I'm starting... A brand new epic mega series. Basically, what I've got in mind is a sort of alternating pattern for these next six episodes. I don't want to get too far into the uh, administrivia of it all because that's just a little. I like, when I listen to podcasts, that stuff typically 
bores me. You know, when somebody spends like 15 or 20 minutes talking about their RSS feed, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's 15 or 20 minutes there of conversation that you could have. I've just never been able to find it for myself, so I don't want to subject you guys to it. But what I'm going to be doing for the next six episodes, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Harry Potter and a little bit about Batman. But Batman can wait for the future, at least for right now. It's all Harry Potter all the time. What I find is that just about everybody has a Harry Potter origin story. Does that make sense? Everybody's got the starting point, I suppose, with with Harry Potter. And, you know, some of them are more entertaining than others, I find. But generally, you know, it's it's almost like the JFK assassination of fandom where everybody remembers where they were and what they were doing the first time they heard of Harry Potter. It could just be a generational thing. It's not like I did any market research on this. So anyway, but because of all of that, I wanted to bring in a guest for this episode because it's not that I don't have a whole lot to say about Harry Potter. I do. But there are some topics that you might better explore with help from a second voice. Now, guys, I dare not exaggerate by saying that this is something that I've wanted to do literally from day one. Like, from the very first time I launched Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, I knew, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that someday, I knew not when, but someday, I was going to talk about Harry Potter. And as I say, it seemed logical, at least to me, to want to bring another voice into the in, into the discussion. And so, ah, well, I've talked around it, uh, I think, probably enough by now. Basically, what I've done is find myself a guest, and not just any guest. This is one of, I think, one of the most interesting voices in podcasting that's going right now. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome the host of Supergirl, I, I think I'm getting this right, Supergirl Radio. That is correct. <laughs> Miss Rebecca Johnson. Hello. Hello. Thank <laughs> you so much. What an awesome introduction. And I'm so excited to talk about Harry Potter. I talk about Supergirl and Superman a lot, and I love them, but Harry Potter is also one of my loves, so I, I'm so excited to talk some Harry Potter. Well, happy to, happy to have you. And, you know, like, the thing is, what I've noticed is that, if, if you believe I'm mistaken, uh, mistaken on this, please do correct me, but what I've noticed is that Harry Potter appeals just about equally to men and women, but I've gotten the sneaking suspicion on at least a few occasions that men enjoy Harry Potter for reasons that aren't necessarily the same as women. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you agree or do you disagree? That's really interesting. I don't know that I've thought about it in those terms. I've always just kind of thought that maybe everyone was into Harry Potter because it, it's almost so somewhat childlike in a way. Like you, you're, in, you're introduced into the story mm -hmm. when Harry is a little boy. And so you kind of follow him through his stories. He grows and, and becomes older and, and goes through all these experiences. So I kind of think that we all kind of get into it because we we are put in his position and kind of come up with him. So I've never thought about it in terms of why guys like it and why women like it. Now, I'm sure <laughs> for people like me, I mean, I am a woman, and I do like some of the, the shipping side of things, even though uh, the, the couple that I wanted to in 
you know, to end up together didn't end up together. That's another story. But so maybe there's some of that into it, and maybe I don't know if guys are more into the the magic and the adventures or whatever. But I like that stuff too. So I have never actually thought about it in those terms. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, the reason I ask is because I I honestly the thought would never have crossed my mind either, except. Uh, I suppose Grant Morrison would call this a shamanic encounter I had during the release party for the sixth book, where I met this, I met a young woman who I can only describe as a Hagrid fangirl, and I got the idea that at least as far as shipping is concerned in her imagination, it was her and Hagrid, and I just thought, you know, of all characters, you know, you know that you could possibly come to fall in love with, that's a really interesting choice, but... Is it really, though, because of the fact that, you know, uh, I don't know about all of the characters, but I would say probably the overwhelming majority of the characters are so well-drawn, so to speak, that, you know, they do have a life and a character of their own, you know? And, and that was, for someone that could so, I don't know, deeply identify on some level or associate themselves with Hagrid... I kind of regarded that as a sign of how well J.K. Rowling was doing her job, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think Hagrid is one of those characters that every... I mean, he's beloved by everyone. I don't know anybody who would dislike Hagrid. And if they did dislike Hagrid, I would be very skeptical of them as a person. <laughs> because he is the most uh, endearing character, I think, in the story. So I, I appreciate anybody who loves Hagrid. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, it's actually kind of funny because I saw her chatting up a guy who was cosplaying as Hagrid, and I kind of had to wonder, you know, <laughs> what ended up happening with those two? You know, I mean, it's just, it's one of those, yeah, it's one of those weird things. Like, you're never going to find out what the end of the story is on that because, you know, you just meet these people in passing. But I've always kind of wondered about those two. Did, you know, did, did it work out? You know, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. I would like to think it did. Well, I mentioned uh, Harry Potter origin stories at the top of this thing. Uh, would you mind explaining yours? She um, told me one time, I remember being in like our den area of uh, the house where I grew up in, and I was in college at the time, I think it was like the year 2000, I was home for a weekend from college, and we were ta sitting around talking, and she told me about this book she had read about this orphan boy who lived under the stairs who found out that he was a wizard, and I was like, well, that's really interesting, I've never heard of that, and uh, so I borrowed her book and I read it and just so happened the next year a movie came out <laughs> so it was one of those things where at the, at the time I was in college I was busy with everything in college all my classes I was in marching band and very heavily involved with so I had no real concept of what was happening in the world in terms of entertainment because I was so busy in my own life mm -hmm. so it was just so funny that I had read the book and then the next year the movie came out and um, it, as I was kind of reflecting back on it, I think I was also introduced to it. And now I don't know exactly if this is a real thing or not, but I remember hanging out with some friends of mine when I was in high school, probably my senior year, just a couple of years before I read the book. And they were playing a video game where the staircases moved. And I'm not sure if there was a Harry Potter video game that existed at the time, mm -hmm. but now that looking back on that, I was like, is there a Harry Potter video game that came out in the 90s? I don't know. Um, but I 
distinctly remember that conversation with my mother. So I would call that my Harry Potter origin story. You know, I got to tell you, that makes me feel so much better about my own Harry Potter origin story because it, it's kind of similar, you know. Uh, the first time I heard of Harry Potter, it was in the summer of 2000. And at the time, I was working as a pizza driver. And the Goblet of Fire came out. Now, keep in mind, I mean, I never even fucking heard of Harry Potter before. And here, everybody was obsessed. Not interested in. Obsessed with Harry Potter, right? Now, I honestly don't know how I'd managed to live all those years without ever hearing of Harry Potter. But, you know, you having said so, that actually makes me feel, like, really good, right? And so... Well, it's interesting. I, I guess it was delayed in the United States. I mean, as far as I understand it, like, it was huge in, in England and in Europe, and it just kind of came to us late. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, I mean, and the weird thing was, I mean, it's like, you know, looking back at it, it was at, it was at the periphery of so much of what I was doing. And it's one of those things that, you know, looking back at it, like, by all rights, I should have heard about it sooner and didn't. But I'm, I was actually flipping through my... Uh, my yearbook from my senior year. This was ages ago. And um, what had happened was, I just, I, sometimes you, you forget you even have some stuff, right? And so I was digging through some box, and, I, and there it was. You know, I was like, oh, wow, I haven't seen this in forever. So I flipped through it, and there was, a, there was sort of a, like the pop culture page, like what happened this year, which, inst you know, instantly dates the book, like the minute you print it, but one of the things that it kind of does, though, is it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, like, what people were really reading at the time, you know, or what they were really listening to, you know, not, not just the stuff that you dimly remember, like, 15 years later, like, what was it like at the time, and there was a page in there that said, and also, the, uh, also something that came out, uh, you know, this year was, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban to great uh, commercial acclaim and all this stuff. And it's like, I don't remember hearing a word about this. But, you know, where was I? Was I in the bathroom? Anyway, so, well, with the Goblet of Fire, this is the one time I can think of with Harry Potter where demand truly outstripped supply, at least temporarily. Before the Goblet of Fire, the Harry Potter books were, I guess, maybe successful, but they weren't. Well, you said it yourself, you know, you, they weren't huge. But Goblet of Fire is when that all changed, and bookstores, at least in my local area, just couldn't keep it on the shelf. Now, this wasn't a problem, I assume, before Goblet of Fire, and it wasn't a problem after Goblet of Fire, but it was a problem specifically for Goblet of Fire. So there was this insane scramble for people to find a copy of it. And this turned into a kind of a, a profitable little venture for me because next door to the Papa John's that I used to work at was a Walgreens. And no one, I guess, ever thought to go to Walgreens to buy the book. And so they had tons of copies in stock. So when I came across someone who couldn't find a copy, well, I was a bit of an entrepreneur and said I'd sell them my copy for $10 more than I actually paid for it. And I probably sold like five or six of those before oh, wow. the supplies actually started leveling out. And then I wasn't able to scalp them anymore. So right from the start, I had pretty positive associations with Harry Potter. But <laughs> I, I never actually read the book. I mean, I just figured, you know, this is an, like an adventure series for kids. And it's not something that's probably going to appeal to me. 
And things might have actually stayed that way, too, but life can be a little, I'm sure you can appreciate that life can be a little unpredictable sometimes. Sure. And so, you know, flash forward a year and a half, and the first Harry Potter movie is on the way. And for those of you who don't remember, everybody, like at the time all this stuff was happening, everybody kind of saw the late 90s and early 2000s as a sort of a geek renaissance. You know, there were more Star Wars movies coming out again, but there were also a ton of new geek franchises that were starting up at the time. You had The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter. And people my age and older, God knows, were excited about the first Harry Potter movie coming out, which, like, Rebecca, I don't know about you, I found that utterly mystifying, you know? What, what, uh, what was mystifying? Well, it... it, it, it it, it, in my mind, it was sort of like people being excited about a Berenstain Bears movie coming out, or a new. Ca- I mean, <laughs> oh, like kind of because it was based on a young adult novel. Yeah, and I, I guess I didn't. I mean, I, even then, I didn't really understand what this what this really is, you know. And as I say, things things may have actually stayed that way, but I was. I was dating uh, a girl around then, and she, I hate to say it, but she was kind of a rebound for me, because I think we've all been in a situation like this, you know, where you get out of this huge relationship, you had this epic breakup with somebody, and it really bothers you for a long time, and so you become determined, you want to meet somebody new, you know, just to prove that your ex, she meant nothing to you, nothing at all, you know, and that's the chick I was dating, the rebound girl, right, and so... She was excited, like you wouldn't believe, about uh, uh, The Sorcerer's Stone coming out and couldn't wait to see it and just kept talking it up and all this stuff. And to be honest with you, I didn't really care about the movie either way. But I took her to see it because, hey, maybe I'm going to get a kiss goodnight, right? So actually seeing the movie, I, I guess what struck me, I, I was amazed at the myth of it, you know? The the Potterverse is a very old place. You know, it's got this lengthy, intricate history. And I think you could probably argue that Harry's story is not only very interesting unto itself, it's probably the most interesting part of the Wizarding World's long and extensive history. But when you think about it, Harry's story is really just part of something much older. And for some reason, like I don't know where you were on that, but that really captured my imagination, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think what was great about the first movie, having read the book before I went to go see the movie, mm-hmm. I think Chris Columbus actually really captured the Wizarding World and everything about that book. Um, I mean, some people could probably argue to a fault, you know, <laughs> but I, when I watched that movie, it, it brought the book to life to me. I, I very distinctly remember watching the movie and the scene where Harry goes into Gringotts Bank for the first time. That was almost exactly how I had pictured it in my head. And so I think the, the first movie, The Sorcerer's Stone, set up that universe very well, set up the world of Hogwarts and set up those characters and kind of what Harry's... You talk, you talk about that kind of uh, almost mythological story of Harry, you know, his his life and his connection to to Voldemort. All of that stuff is set up really well in the first movie. I agree. And I, correctly, I, I, I think, but I sort of interpreted this that, you know, the, the, the story in The Sorcerer's Stone, it unfolds. When you think about it, I mean, that's got to be a, just a, an incredible pain in the neck to write. Because on the one hand, you have to reveal a lot of information. 
in one sense. But if you're at all familiar with where the story goes and what gets revealed in books or movies as it is for this show, uh, basically in what's still to come, the amount of stuff that's actually still concealed and has to get revealed later on, I mean, it's a, it, just from a technical standpoint, I mean, I do kind of consider myself to be a little bit of a writing guy. And, you, you know, J.K. Rowling and, I guess, what's-his-name, Clovis, the screenwriter of this thing, has oh, to yes. kind of... Yeah. There's this incredible balancing act they have to do between giving you enough to be interested but not giving away the store, you know? Yeah, and I one of the cool things about this movie, I think, is actually the first shot because first shots are really important, and especially when you're introducing a new story that most people probably have never read or heard of and I, I like that the first shot is just this owl perched on the privet drive sign mm-hmm. and it just immediately sets up that owls are going to be important and then it goes into you know you get you get introduced to Dumbledore and McGonagall and the fact that she can transform in and out of a cat form and so you, you're immediately put into, okay, this is the real world, this is a street in, you know, in the London area, but there's also magical things happening around it. So I, I do agree that they had a, a really tough job with this movie in trying to establish the world and establish all these you know, new things like Diagon Alley and these things that nobody has really ever heard of before and make it so that you feel familiar with it. Agreed. And that's actually one of the things that I like about it is that, you know, when you think about, like, where, like, the, the movie, like, the proper movie actually starts, you get that little tease at the beginning, like you were saying, you know, where Harry gets delivered to the Dursleys. But the story starts very small. I mean, it's a very claustrophobic, it's literally very claustrophobic in that Harry's waking up in the cupboard under the stairs. And then it gets a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger, and a little bit weirder, and a little bit weirder. <laughs> and so, finally, by the end of this thing, he's won a Quidditch match, he's defeated a troll, and he's foiled Voldemort. I mean, yeah. e- every step of the way, you know, the scale of it is getting slightly bigger, and it's happening in such an organic way. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful. I, I, like, I really don't. I mean, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or anything like that, but that's a... I guess a, a, a sophistication of storytelling that I would never in a million years have credited Chris Columbus with being able to do. He just never seemed like, he never impressed me as the kind of guy that would be able to tell, uh, I guess, a, a little bit more sophisticated type of story like that in a very sophisticated kind of way. And I think, you know, it is true that this is a, this is definitely a little bit more of a, kids movie on some level but there's I don't know he I think he really went above and beyond you know uh, when all is said and done yeah well and I think in terms of it being a kids movie I think what connects us to it is the fact and this is what connected me to the Harry Potter story in the first place was that you know he is this kid under the stairs and like you said like how the story gets bigger and bigger and bigger he's he's this kid who and I think the movie does a really good job of showing how He's kind of treated terribly by the Dursleys. They have pictures of, you know, <laughs> Dudley everywhere. Um, and there's all that focus on him, and he's treated so horribly. And the Dursleys are so, I mean, they're awful to him. And they, um, 
kind of keep him in, you know, Harry talks to the snake about, you know, oh, I've been bred in captivity too. Um, And so I think what's cool about the movie is that you get to actually see Harry go from this horrible place into this grand wizarding world at Hogwarts where, I mean, he gets to live in a castle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you get to see him go from this covered under the stairs to getting to live in a castle. And that's like the dream, I think. (laughs) I think we would all love to, to, um, be in a place where you feel accepted and you feel at home and then you get to live in this awesome place surrounded by these awesome magical things. So, um, that's also one of the things I love about this movie. Hmm. Now, I've got a question for you. And honestly, this this only just now occurred to me, so I'm not trying to ambush you here or anything. But you mentioned that Harry Potter was, like as a media juggernaut, I guess, it basically took a little bit longer for it to take off in America. And... I guess, to what degree, like in your opinion, to what degree is that owed to the fact that this is sort of a double alienating thing to at least American audiences, that there's the, for lack of a better word, sword and sorcery angle of it, that's a major part of what Harry Potter is, but the other thing is, it's very British, as a story, it's very British, I mean, might that have had something to do with it taking longer to get traction here, do you think? I mean, possibly. Uh, I, I can't speak from the, the books because you know, I can't read the books kind of late, but that that possibly could be part of it. And I do remember back back in the day when the movies first started coming out that there was a lot of hubbub about the witchcraft and the wizardry part of it, and um, you know some some people uh, were up in arms about it. I, I remember my. Um, my dad talking about that kind of thing because he taught at a, a Christian school and of course I'm a Christian so I don't I don't have any problem with it <laughs> myself but I, I remember that there was kind of a hubbub about that when the movies first started coming out and maybe it's kind maybe it's kind of um, a, uh, a a laziness thing of Americans I don't know maybe it took the movies to start coming out for people to get into it um, but but that that could also be because of you know. Uh, you know that's that's what happens to other books that get turned into movies. And sometimes people don't want to go read the books until they've seen, you know. So it's kind of a weird phenomenon. So I don't know, I don't know exactly why that was, to be honest. Well, what I've always kind of assumed is that the idea of boarding school—that's just something that I've always more associated with Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it that it doesn't happen in America. In fact, I. I kind of, I, I sort of had an on-again, off-again kind of relationship with a with a girl who attended a Catholic boarding school um, here in the states. So obviously, you know, here in the states because I'm um, I'm American. But um, so that was something that I guess I was aware of. But it's it, it sort of, I guess I'd always kind of assumed that's it, it's one of those things that like you maybe you see it on TV, but you don't really. It, there's a very narrow segment of society that actually does boarding school most people just go to school and then they come home for the day you know and the idea of living at school is i I, again it's just it's one of those things that i've always kind of more associated with europe and i think specifically england but europe in general it's just it's not really a thing as much in america and unless uh, you're super rich Pretty much, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And God knows, my, uh, that girl was super rich. So, um, 
so but yeah and that's that's always just been what i've that 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 was the prejudice i had you know basically that's what rich people do and so it just it's that extra degree of alienation that i don't know it because that is a major part of the books the fact that you know hogwarts it is as much as anything else it is a boarding school and so i don't know it's i at least wanted to throw that out there and just uh see what comes back to me but that's actually a really interesting point, though, because I think the Harry Potter books kind of taught me what boarding school would be like in Europe, you know, where they wear the robes and and have to, you know, kind of be sent off for the school year. That That's some, I when they were talking about robes in the book, like I would, I would have no idea what they were talking about. So seeing them in the movie, it kind of gave me some context as to what that was. And, and now, like, you know, if you see, like... Uh, I, I remember when Prince Harry and Prince William were like going to school. I, I forget what that famous school is that they went to. Um, Eton? Mm-hmm. I don't know something something like that. Wherever wherever the world he goes to school, they would wear those robes. I would see pictures of them wearing that kind of thing. So, actually, these movies did a good job of showing what life at a boarding school in England might look like. So that actually is very educational for me. Hmm. Well, and. I, I, I've never really considered myself to be an Anglophile, but let's face it, you know, I mean, my family did come on a boat from England, and really I, a lot from Scotland, but primarily England, you know, centuries ago. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I guess just on a genetic level, I've always kind of not identified with England, but just kind of appreciated it, or maybe just the UK. I've always sort of appreciated it and so i don't know i mean when you think about just how anglo america and its foundation really is i mean it 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 just it's kind of interesting to think that this isn't it's on the one hand it's like it's culturally very far removed but on the i guess on on a deeper level it's we're the same you know so i don't know but as i was re-watching the movie you know for this for this show one of the things that when I started counting toes, what I realized is it's an hour and 11 minutes. I kid you not. It's an hour and 11 minutes before the real story of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone really gets underway. Everything that happens up to the one hour, 11 minute mark is exposition on some level or another. It's universe building or it establishes characters, you know, this or that. But the first time that we hear about you know, I guess what the franchise of this movie is, which is somebody's out to to steal the Sorcerer's Stone, or at least steal something. You know, Fluffy is protecting something. The first time that comes out is an hour and 11 minutes into the movie. And again, this kind of goes back to, you know, Chris Columbus being apparently a better filmmaker than I gave him credit for, because when you think about spending an hour and 11 minutes on what could what the audience could kind of interpret as spinning your wheels that's a pretty brave way of doing the story i mean you know had it been me i might not have had enough faith in the audience to stay with me for that long i might have wanted to introduce that little part of the story somehow introduce that earlier in the movie just so people have uh they're invested in the story a little bit more i think it's a really brave way that, uh, to construct the movie that's a great point and I think the reason it works is because 
you're so invested in learning about the wizarding world when you go to Diagon Alley, when you meet Ron and Hermione, when you finally get to go to Hogwarts and see what that's like. I think all of that and <laughs> see Quidditch. It's like, what is this Quidditch game and how do you play it? So I think it sort of works on that level where all of the universe building like you were talking about, that helps lead into that. And I, I, don't, I don't think I ever get bored of learning more about the Wizarding World. So I think that the audience kind of stays with it. I think maybe he trusted that the audience would want to find out what's, what's going on in this new world and learn about these characters. And so that's, that's really interesting that you, you kind of pinpointed the, the moment where the actual title of the movie kind of comes into play. That's something I would never have thought about because it does take a little while to get to that main plot. They introduced Professor Quirrell early on in, in the movie, mm-hmm. but that kind of doesn't really really come back into play until the very end. So that's that's an interesting way to look at the movie in terms of how they set everything up and to get to where they needed to go. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, the, the perception I had after watching the movie, and obviously this was not really correct, but again, all I had to work with was having seen the movie, just this one movie, right? The perception I had was that, like I say, this was kind of an adventure series for kids, and it was going to be very, I don't know, very Disney, very G-rated, and that nothing big was ever really going to happen. In the first book, Voldemort almost comes back, but Harry foils him just in time. And then in the second second one, Voldemort almost comes back, but, but Harry, Harry foils him. And then in the third one, wash, rinse, repeat. And that nothing big was ever going to really happen. Now, if you've got even a cursory awareness of what happens in the Goblet of Fire, I probably look very foolish right now. But, you know, just keep in mind that a lot of things, you know, J.K. Rowling really played a lot of things kind of close to the vest. And she wanted the threat of Voldemort to always be there, you know, that... You know, it, it, it kind of ties in with a theme in the series that the forces are, uh, of evil are kept at bay by the constant effort of the forces of good. And sometimes that's a very day-to-day type of struggle. Sometimes it's more of a mythical, epic type of struggle, you know. But it's, some, it, it's a battle that has to be fought every single day, uh, even, even if it's on the microscopic level. And that, I think, is, if you wanted to put together some kind of a meta theme for the first three books, that's it, you know? And maybe I'm wrong. But, so, when things finally do get a little bit more interesting, you know, a bit later on, and that's outside the scope, definitely, of this show, but it showed, at least me, that, you know, I was very mistaken about what I thought this series was going to be, and very pleasantly surprised. You know, but coming back to it now, you know, I did, I didn't reread, like, the book proper. I just, I watched the movie and then just uh, flipped through a couple of passages in the book. But one of the things in the book that, that really caught my interest was that by the time you get to the seventh book, I think it would be safe to say that J.K. Rowling had definitely found her own voice as a writer and storyteller. But in the first book, she has this kind of, it, it, it really reminds me... Are you familiar with, with Walt Dahl? Uh, a little bit. His style... It, it, I don't know. It just The first the first Harry Potter book, just uh, on a literary level, just kind of 
reminded me stylistically of Roald Dahl, you know, th- that type of uh, tone where you, you have something that's very ordinary, very mundane, that can become absolute high fantasy at the drop of a hat and nobody bats an eyelash at it. Yeah, she was definitely telling her own story. And that's kind of what I really like about the Harry Potter series is that you can tell, like, it's her personal... She's using her personal journey and her personal experiences to inform the characters and inform Harry's story. Um, Because I kind of see it as the way she's dealing with the death of a parent. And so you see that throughout all of the books, especially with Harry's journey. And um, I think the threat that you mentioned with Voldemort always kind of being there, I like that a lot because even in the movie, they hint at the fact that Harry and Voldemort have a connection. And you, you don't know what that is for a while. But I think what's cool about the first two movies in terms of Voldemort always trying to come back is that he's always trying to do it through Harry somehow. And uh, I like that they have, like, the main hero and the main villain always kind of at odds trying to to see who can better the other one. Agreed. And, you know, that's... One of the reasons that that kind of plays for me is that it's only at the very end... This is one of those moments, you could argue that the amount of information that's been withheld from Harry actually hurts him at a certain point because he has no idea, whenever he finally has his showdown with with Quirrell, he doesn't really know what he's up against. He doesn't understand the danger he's really in. Now, he he also doesn't understand the weapons that he has in his arsenal, but he certainly doesn't understand the danger that he's in. And, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, just from a from a practical standpoint, I mean, what adult would want to tell an 11-year-old boy some of the hard truths that Harry's going to have to live with? That having been said, though, I mean, this is... He was... I think you could fairly well argue he was not prepared to do a lot of the things that he ended up having to do by circumstance in the movie. What what are your thoughts? Well, and I think that's why Ron and have to help him at the end and why it takes all of them to kind of deal with all the challenges that they're presented with the chess game and all of that um, and I, I think that's an interesting point to to have someone have to explain to Harry what has gone because for the first part of his life he had no idea what happened to his parents really he didn't know that they were you know a witch and a wizard and why they were killed and so I think it's really interesting. We talked a little bit about Hagrid earlier and how Hagrid is the one who, in the movie, tells Harry, this is what happened to your parents. And I love that it's Hagrid who does it because he's, he's the kind of uh, character who you could get that kind of information from, who's not going to judge you, who's not going to um, tell you something you shouldn't know. He's going he's, he's gonna to do it in a way that will be able to digest. So I, I think that's a really um, uh, good point to bring up because Harry is just kind of dipping his toes into the wizarding world at this point, and he's having to figure things out. And when he goes to class, he doesn't know. You know Snape questions him on how do you make this, how do you do this, and Harry has no idea. So he's still, at this point, trying to figure this world out, figure out 
what he wants to do in terms of being a wizard and how all of this works. So I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for him, but I think that's what makes his friends so important. And I guess in relation to that, um, did Dumbledore, in your opinion, did he ultimately do the right thing by sending Harry to the Dursleys, or should Harry maybe have been adopted out to a to a to a wizarding family, and not so much for his long-term protection, but just for his short-term upbringing? You know, which which do you think ultimately would have been more beneficial? That's a really interesting question that I've never actually thought about because. When you see Harry with, like, the Weasleys and how happy he is with them because they have a big family and they treat him well, and, and of course, Mrs. Weasley dotes over him, even when she's mad at the other boys, uh, she, she loves Harry. And so part of me thinks he would have had a happier childhood and he would have, he would have enjoyed his life more if he maybe had been put with the Weasleys. Um, of course, I don't know if Dumbledore would have known to do that at the time, but... But I, I, I guess maybe Dumbledore just figured, you know, if Voldemort doesn't know where he is, if he's in the uh, the muggle world, if he's with family, maybe that's better. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was the, the right choice or not. But I think in the end, Harry, when he's old enough and when he's ready, he gets that invitation and he's able to make that choice for himself. And I think it was a choice. I mean, he, get, he gets the invitation. But he's the one who says, I want to go with you, Hagrid. I want to see what this is all about. So I think Dumbledore, in some respects, gave him that choice instead of pushing him to, this is where I decree that you live and what you were to do. At least with him being put in the Dursleys, he was able to kind of make that choice for himself. Hmm. All right. That's a good point. This is just an observation I've made. You can disagree or agree as you see fit, but... What I find is that Harry Potter fans, they generally single out one character of the main trio. There's one character that they relate to more than anybody else. Maybe it's Ron, maybe it's Harry, maybe it's Hermione, but one of them will be almost like their surrogate in a weird kind of way. Uh, are you one of those? And if so, which of the three is sort of your alter ego? Well, it didn't start out this way when I started delving into Harry Potter, but my dad, well, it started with my grandfather passing away in 2004, and um, that was actually what kind of got me back into Harry Potter, because like I said, I got into Harry Potter, read the book, watched the first movie, then I saw the second movie, and then um, my grandfather passed away, and then the third movie came out and it just it was a way to you know to get me out of that grief a little bit and give me something to focus on and then of course two years later my father died and harry i always felt really connected to after that because he had mourned his parents and he had death and and that's one of the things in the books and in the movies they talk about later is that harry can see things because he's experienced these horrible tragedies in his life. Like he can see the things that other kids can't because of the death that he's seen, um, whether it be Cedric or his parents or whoever later on down in the story. And so I think for me, Harry was the character I could 
see myself as because I had experienced those losses mm-hmm. and uh, because I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't the smart know-it-all like Hermione I wasn't um, the kind of goofball like Ron who even though I'm, I'm afraid of spiders too um, I, I never really <laughs> saw myself as, as Ron per se but Harry I could connect to uh, on that level hmm. what about you? <sighs> well it was sort of a uh... Sort of twofold. Uh, Ron was who I wanted to be, but Harry was who I was who, like on a weird kind of dark level, that was the one I kind of uh, identified with. And, and there were, you know, some kind of literal visual reasons for that. I mean, the glasses, and I too have a lightning bolt scar on my forehead. <laughs> So, I mean, my story is a lot less interesting than his, but yeah, I, I do have it. And so, you know, I thought, well, that I can kind of relate to. But the other thing was, I remember, you know, my my first day of high school, and total strangers were coming up to me and introducing themselves. And it was just this weird and bizarre, surreal experience, these people that I didn't know. And we're talking like upperclassmen, you know, like juniors and seniors, you know, these people who are giants to me, and, you know, stopping by to say hello, and, you know, just, you know, uh, if you need anything, you know, do you just let me know, and they weren't doing that for anybody else, but they were doing that for me, and the reason for that is because my family name meant something to a lot of them, and they knew my brothers, and so they, you know, these people who, by all rights, shouldn't have even noticed that I was even there, they, I don't know, it's like, you know, you show up and you instantly have friends, and, you know, kind of important friends, too, you know. Um, And so the dark side to all of that was that some teachers were kind of looking down their nose at me, too, because I had brothers. And so, you know, and maybe those brothers didn't have such good relationships with those teachers. And so I never, I didn't have a very fair chance with some of them. And so, you know, when Harry shows up at Hogwarts and, you know, he's this kind of, for so many people, he's, he's this legend, you know, for something that he knows nothing about. He, he was at best only a passive participant and, and he doesn't even remember it happening anyway. And it's like that, that doesn't, that cuts no ice with any of his peers, you know. He's Harry Potter, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, he's here. And on that weird level, I could identify with Harry, you know, that I don't understand why it is that these people all seem to love me so much. It's like on the one hand, he, he was confused by it, he was a little, at times, put off by it. But there were times when he would use it to his own advantage, you know. He didn't take advantage of it very often, but there were instances of him doing so, you know. And I could really relate to that, you know, where you're, you're this person that people have so many expectations for, you know. And well, it, it also sounds like your, your story might have a little bit of familiarity with Ron. Yeah. Because, because Ron has the brothers who might not have the <laughs> great relationship with the teachers. So I, it, that's cool that you, you sort of have a connection to Harry and Ron a little bit. Yeah. And then, you know, on a personal level, you know, goings on with, you know, Percy later on in the books, 
that's definitely one of my brothers. He's really that big an asshole. So I love him. Uh, you know, if anyone else calls him that, you know, those are fighting words. But brother's privilege, I get to call him that. <laughs> and so, you know, like the like the sibling, the loose sibling rivalry that existed between the, you know, the Weasleys, I identified with that. And it's weird that, you know, you can be drawn in so many different directions, but like push came to shove. This goes way outside, you know, the bounds of what this episode is supposed to be. And I, for that, I apologize. But it needs to be said that I liked the idea of Ron, you know, the character that I kind of liked the most. I liked the idea of him ending up with Hermione. Just because he's the guy that, by all rights, should have been overlooked in Harry's legend, you know, and he wasn't. You know, Hermione, almost from the start, had her eye on him. You know, on some level or another, she had her eye on him. And I just kind of like the fact that, you know what, damn it, the ginger wins, you know. <laughs> yeah, they have an interesting bit in the movie where, you know, her first encounter with them on the train. And, uh, you know, I like that her first meeting is meeting Ron and Harry together. And then specifically, even though I had always wanted Harry and Hermione together, I also respect the reason why J.K. Rowling did it the way she did, even though I know she had an interview where she said, well, it could have gone the other way, too. <laughs> um, but I like in the movie they have that, um, that I guess you would refer to it as a meat cute or she kind of comes <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he, he, he Ron sort of bumbles his his spell and she then shows off to fix Harry's glasses so I like that she gets to meet the two of them together and then ultimately she has um, kind of that spark with Ron right from the get go hmm. well and you know and that, and that brings up something that it is a little bit of a pink elephant in the room that these are very conventional child actors with everything that implies and you know I think Daniel Radcliffe does he does a good job for himself I mean because when you think about it he's got a big job he has to carry this entire movie all by himself and he was like I think he was about 11 or 12 whenever he was in this movie and that's a lot of responsibility to put on a child you know and that scene in the uh, on the train though where Hermione is introduced I hate to say it but you, Daniel Radcliffe is definitely of them all the alpha male when it comes to acting I didn't really think that what's her name Watson is she was not then as good as she would be I think even in like by the third movie she was she was a real actress by the time of the third movie. And then in the first one, eh, not quite. That scene just seemed, her delivery, her lines, I don't know. She just seemed a little bit off somehow, you know? There are some growing pains that they do as actors throughout the series. And that scene in particular, the thing, the thing that I think she does really well is that she <laughs> kind of has... Hermione's arrogance a little bit because Hermione is at the heart of her character a know-it-all she's very smart and there's a reason that she's smart she studies all the time she reads books she does her homework and I think the the funny thing for me about that scene is that 
when you meet her, she does have a little bit of an ego on her. She she kind of looks down at Ron for <laughs> not knowing certain things or not being able to do certain things. So I think she, as an actress, did that very well because you immediately know, okay, this is who Hermione is. I get this. And as you go with her throughout the rest of the movie, you get to know her a little better and see that she's a good friend and that she has a good heart. So it's not as um, in-your-face uh, about you know you don't you don't you don't come away from that first scene like oh she's terrible I don't want to spend t- more time with her but um, I like that she's able to kind of show hey this chick is smart and she may be better than the two of them <laughs> which maybe you could argue she is better than the two of them but uh, but I like in that scene even though some of the lines maybe not could be delivered a little better I think that cockiness that she has of knowing what she's good at, I think she does that really well. Another thing that she does really well, even in The Sorcerer's Stone is, you know, maybe her line delivery isn't always perfect, but she from the start was really good at body language and body acting. And, you know, the expressions that she makes, her body language, those things are all when I was rewatching the movie, I was actually struck by how note for note perfect that stuff was. So she was definitely good at that, you know, from the get go. And I, I think it's, you know, when you when you come right down to it, I mean, I think audiences had kind of, you know, at that time, you know, 2001, the ghost, so to speak, of Haley Joel Osment from The Sixth Sense loomed large in a lot of people's imaginations, and so he kind of set the bar really high for what child acting can be. And it was a good reminder that, you know, Jake Lloyd is a little bit more the norm than Haley Joel Osment. And, you know, what I can say about, you know, the trio and Sorcerer's Stone is that none of them ever really stunk up the screen. I mean, the movie was very well cast, you know, not just from, from the adult standpoint, although... I can't really say anything, I can't say a word against any of that, but the children were very well cast, you know, and it's kind of, it's a weird thing, you know, like as a casting director, you would have to be able to not just cast roles for this specific movie, but you have to do a lot of guesswork, you know, what are these children going to be like four years from now, five years from now, when we're still making these movies and are they still going to be what we need them to be? And I don't know if it's vision on the part of whoever did, you know, the casting for Sorcerer's Stone or if they just got that lucky. But, you know, you look at what ended up happening with these actors in the subsequent movies, and man, this is some amazingly good casting when you think about how young they all are and what they all grew to do in the course of these movies. Yeah, they really had to cast for the long haul, which <laughs> could be really tough because you could have have a kid who might be okay for the first couple of years, but then maybe something, you know, maybe he turns to drugs and, and uh, has a has a tough life and then can't continue. Like, you know, you never know what's going to happen to these kids. So I think that was really bold that they made those casting decisions. But I have seen, like, the the chemistry test video that they have of the three of them mm-hmm. and it seemed it seemed like they they hit it off immediately and that they were those characters from the get-go so it probably actually made it very easy for <laughs> the casting director because they were just so good right from the beginning 
Agreed. And, you know, I do remember there was a fair amount of speculation, and these were just rumors. I don't know if any of this ever had any kind of basis in truth or reality, but there was a lot of speculation that, at the very least, Daniel Radcliffe was going to be replaced starting in the fourth movie, and that, you know, the other, the other characters would be gradually replaced, you know, over time, so that when all was said and done, we, you know, will have had a completely different cast in the last movie as compared to the first one, and honestly, that never really happened. I mean, and it, it wouldn't have happened really at all if mortality was no object. You know, I don't think there would have been any casting changes whatsoever, you know, and the only major casting change that happened was because somebody unfortunately passed away, but... Richard Harris, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, it, it it's sad that he died and everything. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to make light of that, but at the same time, because, you know, this is somebody's life, you know, it's more than just, at this point, it's more than just a movie, this is somebody's life. So I'm, I don't want to minimize the importance of that, but that having been said, they really did find a better Dumbledore, I think, starting in the third movie, but here again, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So, um, as to the finale of this movie, I mean, when you think about it, this is pretty balls out, because Harry, an 11-year-old boy, killed a man you know and i don't know if he necessarily intended to do it but he nevertheless did it and my memory of the book is a little bit fuzzy but i don't i think what we what we were supposed to infer from the book was that coral died as a result of his struggle with harry but it didn't happen on screen so to speak it didn't happen on the page and i don't even think harry was awake you know at the time that it happened and so there's a there's a disassociative element there where, you know, he, in his own mind, he's not tied directly to the death of somebody, whereas in the movie, he is, you know, and so maybe you've got a better recollection of, of the book. I mean, is that the way that it happened in the book? Do you remember? Or? Oh, I, you know, I haven't read the books, reread them in a, a really long time, so I don't know specifically from the books, uh, I don't remember what they how they dealt with all of that but yeah it is a really tough thing that harry has to go down there and do he's basically this kid facing off against the devil if, if you were you know um and and he he has the help of his friends getting to that point but then the rest of it is him doing it on his own um yeah i don't i think it's interesting that you you point out kind of how quarrel is taken over by Voldemort in some respects like there's a connection there that's made so I part of me would like to think that something bad would happen to Quirrell no matter what Harry did Yeah. because if Voldemort was using him Voldemort eventually would use him get what he wants and then <laughs> get rid of him probably Right. So, so no matter what I think bad things would have happened for him um, but having said that yeah I mean this little kid has to go up and and do you know i don't want to say something bad because it is something noble he does save the school he does stop voldemort from coming back so in that sense he is a hero but there is there is a point where he has to make a really tough choice agreed well <clears throat> and it does kind of it, maybe i'm digging too deep here but it does kind of raise you know other questions i mean Dumbledore knows good and well 
what happened, you know? And it does kind of make you think, you know, did that ever give Dumbledore a pause on all of this that, you know, this kid is doing things much bigger than I ever expected that he'd do. He's facing challenges that I never expected him to face, at least right now. And, you know, the reality is it could just as easily have gone the other way where maybe he lost. And so, you know, it's just, if you're Dumbledore, I mean, does that ever give you, you know, some sleepless nights? Like, am I handling this thing as well as I can? It just kind of makes you wonder. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he had those questions in his head. I mean, who wouldn't? But uh, I, I think what the movies do um, in, in some later movies is that they show that Dumbledore seems to know more than he's letting on. Like, mm-hmm. he's aware of things, maybe with invisibility cloaks or time turners. Like, he knows things. So part of me also thinks that even when he might have that kind of more human side to him where he would question those choices and those decisions that he's made with Harry, I think he also, there is that fact that he is one of the most powerful wizards in the wizarding world. And I think he knows things. I think he has abilities to be able to sense that um, the big things are happening for Harry. And And he also probably just trusts Harry to make the right decisions and the right choices because he knows he's a good kid. So I, I think there's a, a little mix in there with all of those things. Agreed. And, you know, I think a good indication of that, and this is, I like novels as a form for storytelling, but there are certain things that film does better. And I think a good example of that, and also what you say of Dumbledore keeping his eye on things, is in the sorting hat scene uh, near, not at the beginning, but nearer to the beginning. There's a moment when McGonagall calls Harry's name out, and you see this moment where Dumbledore straightens up. He's paying very close attention to what's happening. And you can write something like that in a book. You know, Dumbledore sat up with great attention. You know, he wanted to see what happened. You know, you can write that in a book, but for some reason, seeing it, it it just carries a different weight to it. You know, that Dumbledore is, number one, he knows more than he's telling, obviously. But number two, he's invested on a personal level with what happens to Harry. And that's suggested just in the fact that it was Dumbledore himself who delivered Harry to the Dursleys, but it's reinforced there. Dumbledore is not a passive observer in all of this. He's sort of—he's at times an invisible participant because he's the one that gave Harry the invisibility cloak back. He didn't really discipline Harry for sneaking out of bed at night and and watching himself in the mirror. You know, there are so many times that. Dumbledore had to know what was going on and could have, you know, busted Harry for it anytime he wanted to. And he let a lot of things slide. And I don't think that there's any passage in the book uh, or any part of them, uh, of any of the movies that you can flip to and say, you know, where, where Dumbledore says, well, I let you get away with crap I'd never let anyone else get away with because you're, you're really in for it in the years to come. But that's almost... It's almost like that's the only logical interpretation you can have. On some level, 
he was taking it easy with Harry simply because Harry's living by different rules, whether Harry knows it or not. I think that's a really interesting point um, because if he maybe knew that some, I mean, I think he probably, even if he couldn't maybe see the future or something like that, he probably knew Voldemort is coming for Harry. Something is going to happen. One day, Voldemort is going to come for him, and that's going to be huge for Harry and his life. And I like the idea that maybe Dumbledore let some things slide because he wanted Harry to have a, a childhood. He wanted him to experience things like, you know, getting busted for being late to class or, um, you know, just going out and having fun with his friends. So I, I like the idea that Dumbledore, in some ways, did become this father figure to him in, in terms of wanting the best for him. And I think part of that is to allow him to be a kid. And I think the example that you gave about the sorting hat is a really interesting one because that's a huge moment. Because no matter what happens, I mean, if if the sorting hat did say, okay, I'm going to put you in Slytherin, that's huge. That changes the game. That changes everything for Harry. And I think Dumbledore knows that. I think he knows how important it is to find out what house Harry goes in. And I think if you kind of come at it from Chamber of Secrets and then go back to the Sorcerer's Stone, you kind of know why that's a huge thing because Dumbledore has that history with Tom Riddle and how Tom Riddle made some choices and was put in Slytherin and had all of those experiences. And now, you know, he's seeing that with Harry and doesn't want Harry to make those same choices that Tom Riddle does. So I think if you kind of kind of go the reverse order from Chamber of Secrets back to the Sorcerer's Stone, I think that, for me, gives that sorting hat moment a lot more weight. Agreed. And, you know, the, uh, I, 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 you know, I almost want to say that Sorcerer's, or rather, Chamber of Secrets is to Sorcerer's Stone what the Godfather Part 2 is to the first Godfather, and that you can you see the connections and complexities of things how history repeats and you know sometimes you see things that are done in passing that the fullness of it isn't necessarily understood at the time i mean one of the things that if you just watched sorcerer's stone knowing nothing at all about harry potter if this was the only stuff that you knew about harry as i that was my position when when I saw Sorcerer's Stone, I didn't know what else was coming. And there's that moment in the zoo when Harry, when Harry speaks to the snake, and I thought, oh well, this is just the Disney moment of the movie, and and that's there's really no great significance to this beyond what we're seeing right here. And that is the the total opposite is the truth, and that actually is. It's a very, it's very lighthearted, but it's still a, a, a foreshadowing of some really dark, twisted, evil stuff that is part and parcel of, I guess, Harry's uh, heritage. You know, there are things going on that are very close to the to the definition of of what's dark and evil in the world, and it's played for laughs. It's very, you know, cutesy Care Bears moment it actually is suggestive of something deeper and uglier, you know? Oh, yeah, and it, it helps with the world building as well because one of the things I love about that zoo scene is that when you first 
get there and you see the kids coming out of the reptilian area, they're all dressed in like green jackets and hats. And to me, that is reminiscent of the Slytherin house and how they, they have a lot of green and snakes associated with them. And so I like that little bit of it kind of, you know, helping you connect the dots between even just the muggle world and the wizarding world that these things are important, they are connected. And I, I like the, the, the planting of the parcel, parcel tongue in the first one, and that comes back into play pretty, pretty heavily on down the road. But right from the get-go, you're seeing there's something wrong. Well, not wrong. There's something different about Harry. There's something he can do that nobody else can do. And you see that it kind of freaks everybody else out in the Dursley family. So I think, um, and, and rightfully so, I think because it, it freaks out people in the wizarding world that Harry can do that as well. So I think it's really cool that in the movie they're able to take something that is, like you said, really kind of dark. You know, he has this connection to Voldemort that gives him these abilities, and that's very scary. But they also were able to treat it as a way for Harry to have a win. As it, as it were, like he's, he's, he's being treated terribly by the Dursleys, but at the end of the scene, he kind of gets the upper hand and <laughs> Dudley's put in captivity. So there is a funness to it that helps you deal with the darker themes of it. Agreed. Um, one of the, uh, and, now, and how are you doing on time, by the way? Um, I've, I've got a couple more hours. Oh, okay. All right, well... One of the things about the book when I finally read it that kind of sets it, really sets it off from the movie was that when when Hagrid takes Harry to Diagon Alley, they end up running a bunch of different errands, one of which involves Harry being measured for uh, robes so that he can have something to wear when he's at school. While he's there, the boy is never named, but it's it's basically Draco Malfoy that he runs into there. And he has a, you know, they never trade names or anything like that, but they don't really see eye to eye. And that's established literally the moment Harry sets foot into the wizarding world in the book. In the movie, it's more of a slow burn to a rivalry between uh, Draco and Harry. And so that by the time that they have a sort of a their first real conflict with each other over the remember all when Neville gets taken off to what's her name the nurse and this was something that in the book had been from the get-go they got off on the wrong foot with one another and it just got worse and it got worse and it got worse and in the movie it's almost like the wizarding world would be almost utopian except that you have now a bully there who's crashing the scene and it gets uglier and uglier and uglier as the movies go on you know and you, and you get further along in the story but even right here in Sorcerer's Stone Draco Malfoy is kind of the harbinger of something nastier and honestly it, uh, you could argue it actually kind of comes full circle at the end of the movie when we see sort of the logical end of everything that Draco Malfoy is up to with Voldemort. Right, it's not right from the start. It's it's this is something that intrudes on on the Wizarding world in the movie, but in the book, this is something that defines the the Wizarding world. These people are 
in some sense, the definition of the wizarding world, or at least the foundation of it. I think that's a, a, a cool point to consider that the wizarding world could be a utopia if it wasn't for some of these wizarding families having this idea that there's like a hierarchy to the, the families and who's, who's better than who. And what I like about in the Sorcerer's Stone is that in, in, in the movie version, when Harry is introduced to Draco Malfoy, he immediately tells him, Harry, just so you know, other, some families are better than other families. And what I like about that moment is that when Draco puts his, his hand out to kind of bring him over to the dark side, Harry rejects it. And he says, I can tell the wrong side, the wrong sort for myself. And I, I think what's cool about the Harry Potter story is that you've got Voldemort as the, the main threat that looms through everything. But then you have things like Harry having to deal with bullies and having to deal with the fact that some people look down on other people and how that's a real world kind of a thing, even if it's in the wizarding world. And I think what makes Harry such a hero is that he sees everybody as equal. So I, I sort of like that slow burn with Malfoy, especially over the course of all the movies, because it, it could be Draco Malfoy's story just as much as, as it could be Harry's story, because Draco is this kid who is kind of his opposite in a way. He's born um, into this family that has all this luxury. They have servants, you know, house elves and things like that. He's very well off, whereas Harry is not, but Draco has been brought up with this sense that he's better than everybody and it's just it's neat to see that they are such opposites and i think tom felton even even he when he was a kid he had some growing to do as an actor but he was a real snot in that scene <laughs> to be honest he was a real snotty kid and he needed to be for that moment and i think that's such a great part of the movie because you see that Yes, Harry has these larger looming threats, but he has these other threats on a daily basis. And I think it kind of says a lot about Harry that, you know, he'd been kicked around and bullied. Not in the book, it, it, what you find out is not just by by Dudley. Other people at the school that he went to, the Muggle school that he went to, they didn't exactly hold Harry in very high esteem either. And so, what Harry ultimately was turning his back on by rejecting a friendship with, with Draco was enfranchisement in the system. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a living legend, but being friends with somebody influential like the Malfoys would have cemented his legend. And I think it says a lot about Harry that he didn't go for it. You know, after an entire lifetime of being the victim, he was in no hurry to play the part of the bully himself anymore. And I think that says a lot about his his maturity and a lot about his character, you know, because I kind of have to think after a lifetime of being victimized, some people would choose whatever protection they could get, even if they were total scumbags. Right. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's that was one of those moments, you know, I saw it in the movie and I thought, you know, Harry officially has my respect now. You know, I mean, yeah. he always had my sympathy, but now he has my respect, too. And let's face it, I mean, if, if you just think of, if you view the world in very kind of cold analytical terms, a friendship with, with Ron doesn't really provide anything tangible. It's the intangibles, you know, the acceptance. And 
the way that I mean it, love that that it, that he has from the Weasleys, he can't get anywhere else, and that means more to him than than his immediate social standing. And that's, I mean, I'm not trying to beat this to death, you know, because let's face it, the story needs it to happen this way. But I I still think it says a lot about Harry that he's making a moral choice, and he acknowledges that he's making a moral choice. Yes. So very very mature on his part so yeah and I, I like your points about Ron because one of my favorite scenes uh, I'll go back to that scene where they first meet on the train especially for Harry and Ron because I think that's a, a separate thing that has to be talked about their their first meeting because you have Harry meeting Ron but then you also have the scene where Hermione comes into the picture but Harry and Ron I think have a really fun interaction in the movie because when Ron finds out that he's Harry Potter the first thing he he says you know do you have the scar like he he wants to verify this is the kid that everybody talks about and when he sees it he's just like wicked that's cool all right and it's it's there's no judgment there's just acceptance and it's like they're immediately you know best friends yeah. <laughs> so i think that really is a great distinction between his interaction between harry's interaction and malfoy is that ron doesn't worry about what family he's from you know what his standing in society is ron doesn't care anything about that because ron is the one who's like i can't get anything on the snack cart <laughs> you know like ron doesn't have the ability to say anything about his standing in society because the weasleys are a poor family but they're a happy family and so i think that's a, a complete um flip from what malfoy does malfoy comes right up to harry and says some families are better than other families and you need to be with the right people and so i like that ron just immediately accepts harry for who he is that actually is a really good point i hadn't i hadn't really considered that but you're right there's no there's no real once he gets past the scar thing they they pretty much never really talk about harry's celebrity again after that and wow okay well the um my notes are starting to run a little bit skimpy here. We've talked about most of, uh, at least what I had in mind. But um, I get, one of the things that we can't, I guess, not talk about, I'm not sure how into film scores and whatnot you are. Oh, I'm very much into film scores. <laughs> well, how do you like this one? What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's funny. I I love John Williams stuff from the, the past with his work on Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park and that kind of stuff. Nowadays... I, I look elsewhere for my love of film scores. I'm trying to find people who are doing different things. But what I liked about what John Williams did with the Harry Potter stuff is he, he gave it a very distinctive sound. You know, the Hedwig theme, you hear that and you know it's a Harry Potter movie. Yes. And um, so even though sometimes I think that John Williams has a, a tendency to either do something really awesome or to do something kind of boring and generic. <laughs> like I think there are two sides to John Williams. I think with this one, he definitely gave it its own sound and its own feel. He created an atmosphere. When you hear some of those notes, you know, oh, this is the wizarding world. We're, we're going into a magical place. And uh, I think, especially when you hear it overplayed with visuals of Hogwarts, 
you know, for me, I, when I hear that stuff, I'm like, I want to go there. I want to be there because it just <laughs> looks beautiful. It sounds awesome. This is a place where I want to be in, you know, I want to be here. I want to be in this environment. So I think what John Williams did is he, he created atmosphere for the wizarding world and it's very distinctive and even when john williams left the franchise they kept that sound because it was so uh iconic for the series and so i i, I gotta give credit to john williams on this one even when i think sometimes <laughs> he, he kind of peters off into um some generic sounds i think this one i will give him credit for being uh, very good i think this is one of those times when to me, he's a he's a director's uh, composer. He's very dependent on the director doing his job, and when the when the director does, that's the better the director, the better Williams tends to do. I've noticed, mm -hmm. and so I don't think that the Sorcerer's Stone score is necessarily the best that Williams has ever done. But I do note, uh, I do notice that it's it's a little bit interesting that of the three movies he did, each score is better than the last, and I can't help but think that it's partly due to either the sophistication of the story as it is in Chamber of Secrets. That's a much more uh, that's just a denser and in some ways kind of darker story, which I think helps john williams and then in the third movie it's just a different filmmaker altogether which oh, yeah. i which i think is what really puts it over the top i mean there's there's a creepiness to to the movie this kind of looming darkness that it's always just out of the range of the camera but there's something menacing going on at all times there's something menacing that's nearby and the score really brings that across. You know, even if it's just a Dementor hanging outside of the, you know, the Hogwarts grounds, danger is never all that far away. And the score really brings that across. And here it's, I think it, you're right, it is definitely atmospheric, but some of it is a little bit paint by numbers for my taste. Mm -hmm. And you said a minute ago that, you know, John Williams, you tend to look elsewhere for a lot of your favorite scores, and God knows I do too. I mean, I, I'm not saying that to insult John Williams. I'm just saying that my tastes have kind of broadened beyond that. And I tend to like something other than a just a conventional type of film score just because I've heard so many of those now. I like something that sounds, you know, different. And Hans Zimmer, typically he sounds different. Or John... I love Hans Zimmer. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? Or John Dedney, he typically sounds very sometimes really different you know and so at the same time you know i i don't want it to sound like me i'm like i'm being dismissive or anything because I, I wouldn't i'm not but this score i don't think is his career best he sets a great foundation but to me this is a classic case of the best is yet to come and i would i would agree with that i think that he sets the tone literally for what needs to be the iconic sound for Harry Potter but it's it's not uh, I have three of the soundtracks it's not the the one that of, of his that I play the most agreed yeah and so that I don't know I, I, I think we've kind of we pretty well covered now is, is do you have any uh, anything extra that you want that you want to toss in 
Well, there would be, would be one thing that I would warn people about because in this movie they um, do a, a fun scene where they introduce all the, the snacks of the wizarding world, like the chocolate frogs and the birdie bots here, every flavor beans. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just a, a funny story. I did try the uh, birdie bots every flavor beans one time, and I did eat the vomit one because I wanted to see if it tasted like vomit, and I just want to tell you, it tasted exactly like vomit. Oh. Never, never eat it. If you think, oh, there's no way that could actually taste like it, it does. So don't. <laughs> oh man. Um, so um, that was one of the things I loved about the the first movie is that even down to the, ch- you know, the chocolates to the candies and 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 those little sort of minute things that are talked about in the the book that make the world so rich. They paid attention to that, and they brought those to life and made those, you know, things that can be sold and <laughs> and eaten and maybe even spit out now. <laughs> <laughs> or spit up, yeah. <laughs> or spit up. So, so I, I appreciate that about this first movie is that it did such a great job of introducing us to what the Wizarding World was like and how it was different from our own world that it made you want to try a vomit flavored every flavor bee just to see what it tastes like. Hmm. So, um, I, I have uh, I have a lot of love for this first movie because it, it brought the book to life. Actually, and you know that I don't know why that reminded me of this, but there actually there is one other thing I wanted to mention. The there's a Quidditch match uh, in this movie, and then there are some some other things too, uh, some other action scenes that have some very questionable CGI. I mean, I don't, and I don't mean that like in a modern sense, you know, this, this hasn't aged well. I mean, this is stuff that looked a little bit shady, even at the time this movie came out. And I don't completely understand that, but that is, you know, that nevertheless is what happened. So this again is one of those things that it got fixed up and it was done better in subsequent films. And but you know it, it, for those of you who've never seen this movie before and now you kind of have a hankering to do so, just keep in mind you know some I think these all of these visual effects they were basically done inside of like six months or something like that, and so these were hardly cutting edge even at the time that this movie came out. They're functional, they do what they need to do, but they're not certainly they're not as well done as perhaps modern CGI would be. And I don't think they were even quite as well done as CGI back in 2000 could have been. So just something to keep in mind there. So that really was the only other shot. Now is there literally anything at all, anything else that you want to say about this before we, we call it a day? I, I guess I just I love how magical it is. And I, I love that we get to know the characters so well in, this, in the Sorcerer's Stone and... Um, I really appreciate you letting me come and talk about it because Harry Harry Potter is um, something that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, kind of helped me through um, a, a bad time in my life, and it was something that kind of let me escape into another world. And so these movies, and especially the first one, because it it did it really like you know it, it was leaping off the page in front of me, and uh, so I'm, I'm I love to talk about it. Awesome, and thank you very much for for joining in. I think you're actually the first woman I've had on my podcast. Uh, all my other guests have been have been men. So well, I'm very honored. <laughs> well, and it was a it was a joy to have you. Thank you very much. Now, just in 
just going forward, what I, you know, the plan, what I want to do is have Rebecca back so that we can talk about in another episode coming soon. Is uh, she's going to be back hopefully to talk about Chamber of Secrets, and then after that, we'll uh, wrap up the Harry Potter portion of this mini series with uh, a discussion about the Prisoner of Azkaban, and you know, I'd love for Rebecca to join in on those. But uh, that's basically the loose plan, at least for the Harry Potter aspect of this mega series I'm working through. But next week, I'm going to be joined by Professor Allen so that he and I can talk about Batman Begins. So come back for that. But I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Hallelujah. We are out. dramatic reading. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wild. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out Dorkness to Light, blogspot.com for our more regular content or darknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content 
Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.